Hello, RSA members, and welcome to the RSA podcast. My name is Lauren Lamparter, and I am your RSA immediate past president and a PGY2 at the University of Illinois Chicago. Today, we have the second installment in our unionization podcast series following our AAEM Scientific Assembly Resident Labor Rights panel discussion. We are here today to discuss the history of resident unionization. Joining in our discussion today is Dr. Michael Losak. Dr. Losak is a practicing emergency physician and currently an assistant professor at the Stanford School of Medicine. While he was a resident at the University of California, San Francisco, he led the organizing committee that successfully won a new house staff union there in 2017. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Losak. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so how did you first develop an interest in residency unionization? What what were the roles that you played in forming your union? Yeah, I came, so I started residency in 2015. I'd actually worked in between college and med school. So I had a, a different job, a different career before coming to medicine. And I remember getting to residency and being very surprised, both at the lack of a contract. I used to review contracts as part of um, my job and really that I was going to be making less money at 32 than I had made at 22. And so, you know, with a higher degree and all this training in the meantime, and then simultaneously having that paired with a lot of discussion around how, like, how successfully the nurses had advocated for protections and rights for themselves and their patients through their unions. And so I don't know if all of our listeners know, but there's a full, like, safe staffing law in California that the California Nurses Association, one of the unions here had passed to, to set out union, to set out ratios for, how, you know, if you, you need one-to-one ICU care or trauma care, four-to-one ED care, et cetera, had yeah. breaks, had higher unions. And a lot of the residents were asking, like, why did this happen? And the more I dug into it, the more it was because they were organized and advocated for themselves. So when the opportunity came up to run for a delegate in 2016 for our union, I did. We have two sites. We had the general and we had UCSF and mm-hmm. San Francisco general was unionized and UCSF was not. And so like resident, uh, the resident contract came up at the general and I was one of our contract bargainers and learned that from some historical process, we were actually not allowed to negotiate or we it was permissive bargaining. So the city didn't have to negotiate around wages and benefits. with the general contract. So this is what kind of sparked the idea of, well, we need to actually be able to, to, to negotiate for our own rights, for our own wages, for our own benefits beyond just, do we have a call room uh, like close to the trauma zone? So that's when the organizing campaign began in earnest, which was 2017. And when we won our union, we were the largest new public sector union in California that year and the largest new uh, physician union in American history. That's, I think MGH is gonna eclipse us uh, when that's done and, and someone else may have in the meantime, but really exciting. And after that, I got elected to the national board of CIR in 2017 as a VP to represent the 1700 unionized physicians in NorCal and wow. actually closed our first contract at uh, UCSF a month before I graduated. Amazing. So you left the legacy behind there. That's very cool. Thanks. Um, so resident unions we are hearing about all over the news now, and they've been around since the 1930s, but we're really seeing this wave of unionization now. Um, we're going to get a little bit more into the history of unionization, but why do you think residents are desiring to form unions? Has it changed from the very beginning throughout history? You kind of touched on this a little bit already, but why or why not? 
Yeah, it's hard to say. I actually, when I was prepping for this question, I tried to look for some primary sources of yeah. what people were saying. And so I found a New York Times article from 1976. And this oh, was wow. around, there was, a, there was a lot of activity in the 70s, a, a lot of powerful activity of house staff uh, organizing. And they, there was a quoted uh, Dr. Harmon, who was representing some uh, house staff association, who says, quote, by clinically classifying them being the, re- the house staff as students, the National Labor Relations Board, and we can talk about their role uh, in a little bit, has given hospitals official approval to continue to exploit young doctors. The administration-backed NLRB has publicly affirmed that the profits of hospital employers are more important than the welfare of workers or the sick. And so I think that uh, that that to me, you know, I can't speak to the what was going on in the 30s, but that to me emphasized that the power dynamic and the asks seemed to be pretty similar to what they are now. Right. And there were two strikes, actually important strikes, house staff strikes in the 70s, one in New York and one in L.A. And their asks for them, the the they were both I think in New York, it was about having meaningful limits on work hours. So it set your call and like work and duty hours. It's the first time that ever happened that there was a meaningful limit on them. And in LA, it was about creating a patient care fund that still exists today. And I think that those three sort of like primary ideas when I was thinking about this question are that we are advocating for ourselves as people who are skilled labor. We are asking to be recognized as not only students, especially with this, this graduated responsibility model to have fair wages and fair hours and to be able to enact meaningful change for our patients. And I don't, I I think that that's the same thing we're asking now. And the same people that were opposing it then are opposing it now. I actually found a quote from the AAMC opposing unionization at that time, warning that it could quote, put further upward pressure on hospital rates. So it seems like the dynamics have not changed that much, but I wasn't there. So, you know, grain of salt. Yeah, for sure. And what I'm hearing you say for reasons why people unionize, it's really advocacy. You know, it's the nurses for their ratios and it's residents for better hours. So we're not exhausted when we're caring for these patients. And it's really making sure that we can prioritize our patients well so that they get the best from the skilled labor that we are training to do. You know, it's it's a way to really support them well. Um, So you did mention that National Labor Relations Board. So we're going to get, like you said, a little bit, we're going to get there in just a second. Um, But can you tell us um, about the trends right now? Like why, what is the role of the National Labor Relations Board and unionization and how, how are residents forming unions? Yeah, so the NLRB for short, so we don't have to go over, you know, the National Labor Relations Board every time. It was created in 1935. It was created as part of the National Labor Relations Act, um, which was passed by the federal government. And it basically establishes a board um, made up of five members and a general counsel that is appointed by the president with consent of the Senate. And their job is to oversee union elections and investigate or remedy any concerns of unfair labor practices. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I think it's important to note, this is for private sector unions, and I think also the United States Postal Service, but this is private sector bargaining otherwise. Like in in the context of medicine, we're talking only about private institutions, not publicly funded um, institutions. And that's how how they've been interacting with... um, private sector unionization through the house staff over the years. Okay. And um, we talked a little bit about how as a resident, we have a role as 
someone who's both learning and is an employee. And so why does it matter so much for residents to be recognized as actual employees as opposed to just straight up students? Yeah, I think that that is a, it's a hot topic, right? Yeah. People love, people love to talk about this. And the distinction, I guess, legally is key because mm -hmm. this is what gets you your rights to actually advocate for yourself as we're talking about or advocate for your patients. You yeah. know, as, as a, as an employee, this is what grants you the rights to unionize. And so, um, I, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate here about professionalism and um, how we should comport ourselves in the hospital, like how we should be seen in a level of training, is this truly graduate medical education, et cetera. But I think that to, to sort of illustrate this change, I was going to talk about the two major cases that framed um, the difference, one being that there was this huge wave of unionization in the 70s, as we were just talking about. And it all came to a halt um, when in 1976, there's a, a decision that comes out from the NLRB. And it was a 4-2 decision that decided that house staff are not students and therefore uh, not hospital employees and therefore not eligible to be represented by a union or engage in the protections of the federal law. Hmm. So when we were told that we were students, that meant that we weren't able to do all of these things that we're trying to do to advocate for ourselves with the guise of federal protection. And that's right. the key here. This, this decision was actually reversed in 1999. So there was a, like a long hiatus in private sector unionization over this time. And th the first decision was colloquially referred to as the Cedars-Sinai decision, if, if that ever comes up. This one, the 1999 decision is the Boston Medical Center decision. Um, and this is a really interesting case that they had previously organized with CIR, with the largest house staff union. And then the medical center was actually sold to a private firm. And when it was sold to a private firm, they actually sought to decertify uh, the union. Uh, the house staff union, because they now fell under this federal law that said, actually, residents are students, and therefore we can decertify your union and you can't negotiate for yourself, right? Public ah. public sector law is different, but this is now a private company having private whatever. And the NLRB revisited this decision and in a 3-2 decision, so it was pretty close, um, ruled that, in fact, residents were employees and thus like were entitled to federal labor protections. And that's why if you're ever looking at articles around this time, there's a lot of discussion in the early 2000s. There's not a lot of action, right? This takes a lot of movement organization. You have to be in the right place at the right time to organize a union, but there was a lot of discussion around whether that was how we should be representing ourselves. And right. again, the same players are at play here. There's a rep from the AAMC quoted in this, in a Washington Post article at the time about being quite, quote, quite disappointed and thinking the wrong decision had been made because they really were trying to emphasize right. the education portion rather than the labor portion, but not, you know, Reemphasizing that us as employees grants us federal rights to advocate for ourselves and our patients. Yeah. And you mentioned that in the beginning where we do have all these different things in place already to protect us as students and support our education, but there wasn't that um, availability of the contract for us as employees in the past that you recognized in order to create the union at your own institution. And it, it really is this weird middle ground where we're finally getting paid and we are these employees, but yet we're still a part of our, in our educational process. And so um, it's, it's interesting to have be having all these conversations in the midst of it and recognize that that distinction there. So you keep mentioning um, public versus private sector. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So why is there a different method to form unions in the private versus, versus public sector? 
Yeah, I think before we move on, one thing to add, I yeah, 100% agree with what you just said. I think a lot of people learn on the job, right? And so why are we different in that yeah. we are highly skilled, doctoral level, educated workers? Why is this learning on the job different than other learning on the job? And I think there are reasons, right? And there is graduated responsibility, but I think it's an important question to ask why our labor is undervalued as doctoral graduates, whereas other people, like plenty of people that graduate from law school, they get paid a full salary and learn on the job, right? All of us are learning yeah. and, and have upward mobility, including me as an attending and my job um, in my administrative capacity. But, uh, uh, you know, very good point. To, to get back to your question, so public versus private sector, this is the, the NLRA that we were talking about, this 1935 federal law, that yeah. is what protects the rights of private sector employees, private businesses to organize it, you know, to, to form or refrain from forming a union, to engage in collective bargaining, to take collective action, whether that's unity breaks, strikes, letters, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and that, that is just the scope of the law. So it doesn't really, it didn't comment on public sector or organizing at this time. Okay. And, and so that method, before we move on to the public sector, it's basically, you have to, you, you, uh, an employer can voluntarily recognize you um, mm -hmm. and go through card checks. So before, as you're organizing a union, generally you sign cards, these cards are anonymous, you file them, you just prove that based on whatever bargaining unit or group of people you're trying to represent that you have a simple majority, so 50% plus one. And the employer is allowed but not required to voluntarily recognize you. I will say I have never seen it happen in the medical sector in the past, at least in the past six years um, of resident organizing. Um, and then if they decline to recognize you voluntarily, it goes to a vote. And that vote is overseen by the NLRB. Okay. Um, the public sector unions. Yeah. So this is because it's not commented on, and I'm not a lawyer, full disclosure, but I, <laughs> my, under, my, my understanding is because it is not commented on in this federal law, it's left up to the states. Okay. And um, each state, therefore, has the power to decide whether or not it even allows or engages in um, bargaining with its public sector, you know, i.e. like government run, uh, state run, um, Hospital. hospitals, clinics, whatever, schools, et cetera, like anything that they interact with. And mm -hmm. so if it is allowed, they also typically allow voluntary recognition. Um, and it's generally like a card counter vote, simple majority, similar to confirm a majority, but it is super variable by state. So for us in California, UCSF is a public institution, just to like ground us in an example, we had to have collect cards. We had a simple majority. We uh, submitted that to PERB, which is the California Labor Relations Board equivalent. And they certified us, we didn't have to have a vote. Um, they just certified us by saying, yep, you have the majority. UCSF submitted a list of employees. We had 51% of them or more, right? we, honestly more, uh, represented in this list. And they said, great, that you know, you meet the threshold 50% plus one, you, um, now you have to, you as an institution have to engage with this, um, this union in your bargaining. Whereas yeah. Stanford, when the residents unionized, I was not a part of this, I, you know, just as an attending there, but they did the card count, submitted, they were not voluntarily recognized, and then they went through um, an election and now are recognized in bargaining. Okay, interesting. So sometimes it might take both, both methods. Um, and when you're saying this card count, just in case some of our listeners are unfamiliar, it's, uh, it's a card that recognizes the union and states that you will join the union. And it is uh, something that you sign as a member of the union, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's basically a promise. 
Um, okay. It's saying like, you know, I support the the formation of this union and that this is, you know, if the election were to happen, I would support it. And so the way that it turns out is just basically signaling your support internally. These are anonymous. Okay. So even when you submit them to the board, they are not shared with your employer. They don't know what, you know, what subset of your employees are supporting the union or not. And generally the way it works is like, if you're the organizer, you carry around your cards. And I would say like, hey, Lauren, like I'm organizing a union right now. I'd really love your support. These are the reasons that we're doing it. Um, this is a totally anonymous process. If you're willing to support it, will you sign this card? Yeah. When we are ready to submit, we submit that to the labor board. The labor board verifies like, yes, this is one of their employees. Yes, it's counted in this bargaining unit. And yes, like they have signaled support. And then the card count is generally a way that like, they can say to the employer, they have a majority. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, that's fine, but I actually want to take it, depending on whether it's private law, they can also always do this public law. I think it depends. Um, they can say, yeah, but actually I do want to have like an open election on campus to see in real time support, not just signaling for support on signing a, a card beforehand. And theoretically you already have that since everyone has promised in advance. So then you're kind of ready. Um, so how would residents know the best way to approach forming a union at their own program? Like, is there a way to know which pathway would be the better one for them? I think, you know, I mean, this is all, so I think to clarify, there's only, there's kind of only like one path depending on where you're employed, right? Like what kind of employer you have. So, so if you have, I think the first key is to determine like what sort of institution you work for. Are they a public or a private entity? If they're private, you you're going down the National Labor Relations Board path and your rights are well protected. If you're public, it's a lot more complicated. And that's maybe the time to dig into and understand your state law around what public sector bargaining looks like. And the unions themselves, like any union or a labor lawyer, will help, can help you understand the scope and ability of yours to organize. And then from there, the like process depends on what we were just talking about, whether, you know, the what their structure is, if it's a public sector union, and then private sector, whether they'll just voluntarily recognize you or whether you need to move to a vote, that depends more on the employer. Yeah, very cool. Interesting. Um, I'm going to uh, throw a question at you that we didn't prepare for, but <laughs> please, uh, this will be on, on the other episode too. So I was just curious from your perspective, why do you think ER residents are so heavily involved in unionizing at this like front effort? Why, why is it a lot from our specialty? Um, I love to think it's because we're the people's doctors yeah. that we like truly sit at the intersection of social issues, structural inequality and healthcare, and really have an understanding of the way that the hospital works mm -hmm. that, and we really deeply care about the ways in which structure and see how that affects our patients and are willing to advocate. I, I also yeah. think that, um, you know, something, something we were talking about in the panel at AEM is that we're shift workers. Yeah. And so I think that I'll quote the stats I quoted there too, if that's okay, just that, sure. that to help understand maybe like current trends in unionizing mm -hmm. that there was this uh, AMA report on how physicians are employed in 2012. And it came out that 60% of physicians work in a wholly physician owned practice at that time, wow. that only like 5.6% are direct hospital employees and uh, just under 24% worked somewhere where there was at least some hospital ownership. When they repeated that study in 2020, uh, under for the first time ever, under half of the physicians worked in a fully physician-owned practice. Yeah. And estimates beyond that from this physician advocacy group in 2022 were that almost 
75% of physician labor is now owned by a hospital or a corporate entity. Wow. And I think that is a huge change, right? Yeah. That, that really fundamentally changes the way in which we are able to execute control over our, our work. And we as, as ED physicians understand that the best, like we've always been shift workers. We've always been, you know, we have democratic groups, but many of us are employed by corporate groups. Many of us are employed um, by hospitals and understand that our work inherently is meant to be interchangeable with other people's work, which is great for our patients, but hard for us because right. each individual has less power um, to advocate for themselves. Like we are not small business owners really anymore. Yeah. We, we are increasingly because of regulatory pressures, hospital consolidations, payment methods incorporated into larger and larger systems. And so as we do that, we lose our ability to, to advocate for our patients and do what's right. And we are increasingly under pressure to be highly skilled labor that is used as much as possible to the brink um, to get as much value out of us, right? Which, right. Can, which can lead to, you know, being a detriment to the patient because it's more, it's less and less time at their bedside, it's less and less time with education. Education isn't paid for, right? It's more and more time of, you know, churning notes and papers and things. So I think we understand it as people who work, who are, you know, sort of precursors to the change or have already understand what it means to be a shift worker and to lose our individual power that our collective power is strong, but right. and that we need to recenter ourselves in this discussion in order to really be able to change the healthcare system for the better for our patients. And we're also just like really well connected at the hospital. Yeah. We rotate everywhere. So you know everyone, <laughs> you understand the pressures, you really care about the patients in the system and understand how those things interact. I think that's what's I mean, it is a lot of EM physicians that are leading these, and I'm I'm really proud that it's our specialty. Yeah, and I, I think one of the common misconceptions about it coming from EM is that we're worried about EM itself. And I think just like you just highlighted, EM is something that really understands the benefit of our role for the patient and sees different areas of the hospital and has this empathy for all of the different residents in the hospital. And so we are the, the voice for we're the gateway to the hospital for the patient and the voice for the residents in, in the hospital overall. And so I think I, that's just one of the myths that I personally wanted to um, address on these conversations is that it's not a reason for you not to go into EM. It should be a reason for you to be more interested in EM. A hundred percent. And I think I can't, I cannot tell you how many times I've helped a lot of organizing campaigns beyond UCSF. I cannot tell you how many times other residents have said to us, like, please speak for us. And I think it speaks to our, our like fearlessness and our, our power and our presence as a specialty that we are willing to say what is right, even if it's hard or unpopular. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I had many other, I had many other specialties within UCSF be like, I'm afraid to speak out on this, but X, Y, and Z is happening. Can you represent us? Can you help you? Well, the whole room will sign a card, but we can't be the public facing aspect of this. Can you do it? And honestly, like, yeah, I can. And I did. And part of that is because we have the support. We have a really cool specialty where yeah. I had the support of a lot of very senior physicians who, again, understand the network and power of collective action to advocate for change within our healthcare system and really fundamentally empower ourselves as healthcare workers to control the narrative of how care is delivered. I mean, our working conditions are patient care conditions. Yeah. So we have we have to make it better. We we have to. And 
I think that that was like, I felt very empowered to be visible and I feel very empowered to make change. And that is a reason, again, as you're saying, to join our specialty, like we have the support of our, of our peers. Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just even though we just really emphasize the benefits of unionization <laughs> yeah. Uh, to, to just highlight a little bit of that shadow side. Um, now that you're on the attending side of re- the residency union conversation, are there, are there any cons of resident unionization that you have a different appreciation for? Um, it's a good question. I, you know, I think the, it can create some sticky interpersonal situations when you're doing it for me, not, not really a reason not to do it. Um, but you definitely come into conflict with, with peers, with, you know, people higher up in the institution from you, because I think sometimes people don't really understand why you're doing what you're doing. And it's often mistranslated into like a personal rebuke, which I try to emphasize all the time. It is, this has, this is not, this is not personal. This is explicitly not personal. This is business, right? This is, this is a contract. And so, you know, I'm not doing this because I don't feel like you can't advocate or haven't advocated, but because this is like a legally informed, protected, mandated way for us to advocate, they have to engage with us now. And so I think there's that, I mean, it is very time consuming. Yeah. Um, This took a lot of my like blood, sweat and tears outside of clinical work. And, you know, we work a lot. So it, it, but honestly, like, I don't really think that there's, I think the only reason not to do it was is if you don't think you have the institutional reach and power to accomplish it, because you don't want to set back the the power of the movement, right? If you don't achieve the union, you're going to set back the timeline to do that for other people. So if it's something you don't feel the capacity to do, um, don't. But as an attending, honestly, it's been great. I think we're going to see a wave of attending union. I mean, we already are, I, yeah. but I think we're going to see a huge wave of attending unions coming um, as we catch up, I, we've kind of been sleeping on this change and are now just starting to recognize it outside of EM. And so I think that as that takes root and we understand our place in a much more consolidated healthcare system, this yeah. is going to be a counter approach. And that's going to be a different journey. Like I'm excited to see what happens, but I've been, I felt very supported. Um, and I think a lot of people are really interested yeah. in this, like more, more often than not, it's not like, a, oh, you know, he did the union. It's more like, hey, that's really cool. Like, what did you think it could accomplish? How could we use this? Like what, how yeah. did it personally or not personally take a toll on you? I mean, it did like, for me, I thought, you know, a hundred percent of our EM residents supported our union yeah. at UCSF. And they were the first people to like prop me up and continue to. And luckily a lot of our attendings had come from, Highland, which is a unionized program, right? Since the seventies. And so people understood, but I think that it's a, it's gonna be, there's gonna be a change in the way that physicians are employed or continue to be employed. And I think this will take center stage. And so I think if you have any experience with it, it's a real like outlet for you to relate to your colleagues and um, talk to them. So I don't see any like- Blatant (laughs) No, I I mean, I, I think just to emphasize like, you know, a lot of us are on this podcast. I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are people who have a different set of cons, but you know, myself, I know Dr. Yap. Yeah. We've kind of staked our reputations because we on this, because we've thought very long and hard about why or why not it's the right thing to do. And yeah. so, and I, and I really felt like it, it was. And so it's hard for me to, you know, it'd be a lot of cognitive dissonance to come up with something else. <laughs> <laughs> but but I really think it's because it was like a long considered really thought out decision about what's right for our patients and what's right for 
for us and are willing to put ourselves on the line, our personal reputation and our time on the line to make it happen. And that's how we reach this decision. Yeah, she'll be, we'll feature Dr. Yap in the next episode after yours. And so she also talks about her blood, sweat and tears and, and how it really takes that certain initiative of a person to give your entire self to this. And so it's really cool to hear your perspective, both of you, um, because it is such an important conversation and it's important to get the facts out there, right? I feel like there's a lot of misinformation surrounding this whole conversation um, from all different aspects of and motivations as to why people would or wouldn't want to have this conversation. But ultimately we all are here for our patients, you know? And so it's whatever we can do for them. And that's why we became doctors. And so I think that as long as we're approaching it with that lens and advocacy, which is one of RSA's main priorities. Um, and I think a lot of EM physicians in general, we, um, this is something we want to continue to talk about. So is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would want us to address with unionization or you'd want to tell our listeners or advice or anything? Yeah, I, I think just to touch on that advocacy, I really think that that is the key. I, I, I think it's really easy to feel disempowered as a resident, right? It's really easy to feel like I don't have control over my schedule and I'm an absentee from my personal life right. uh, and, I'm, and I'm tired and I have, and I have no power to change. And for me, unionization really was my anti-burnout. It was really my my tool of empowerment that showed me that we as a group of physicians have the power to create a better system for the patients that are seen at our hospitals. We have the power to ask for money. We have the power to ask for things for ourselves when we are the patients. Yeah. You know, a lot of what drove this was parental leave and getting our residents were getting two weeks of parental leave, despite having, you know, even if they had a major surgery and then they would otherwise have to take, you know, disability or something. And I think, I think it's an opportunity to remind ourselves that we do wield a lot of power and that power can be used to create community, to mm -hmm. hi to highlight what is harming our system and what's harming ourselves and to change it. And yeah. I think that it it really reverses this narrative of I have no control. The match put me where it put me, and I'm just going to work my schedule, right? Like, which is we we kind of have this learned helplessness, and sure. our patients, our very healthcare system depends on us reclaiming the moral center, hmm. and we need to learn. We need to like we need to relearn how to lead this system. And I think this is a great opportunity to show that it's not any one of us individually that can do this, but all of us together if we yeah. speak with one voice can recenter what should be at the center of, you know, to, to recenter what should be the main issue in healthcare, which is the care, health and well-being of our patients. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I think it's a great opportunity. I, you know, I'm happy if anyone wants to reach out, I'm happy to like talk to them about it too. I really, I, you know, I'm really excited to be, to be here and to talk with you about it. And thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate your insight and brief history lesson with some excellent articles. Um, I hope we'll be able to include those in the show notes down below if anyone wants to address, uh, read those specific articles and get any more insight for themselves. And um, through RSA, we can direct you to Dr. Losak so you just don't get a bunch of random emails. Filter <laughs> them for you. That's good. Thank you. Um, but thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate you having this conversation with us today. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Bye, everybody.